Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Whether Congress passes a 2024 budget or not, federal agencies will continue to engage in contracting, and that will mean continued protests by disappointed bidders. You can learn a lot from protests that have already been settled, and here with a roundup, in his opinion, the most significant protests of 2023, Haynes Boone procurement attorney Dan Ramish. Dan, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. Good to be here. And you've got a list you put together that you think are illustrative of the big trends that people should worry about this year, 2024. Let's start with CIO SP4 protests. This is the big GWAC program from the NIH. Yes, this uh, procurement was very notable for the number of bid protests. So many protests that set new records and broke the GAO's bid protest statistics for the year. But in some regards, it was predictable because there were so many awards, 305 to 510 IDIQ contracts, each with five years and a five-year option and a maximum value of $50 billion. So the stakes were very high, so protests were fairly predictable. And the solicitation was pretty complex that NIH set up for itself. There was a three-phase evaluation of proposals requiring offerors to submit a self-scoring sheet that assigned points for offerors' representations on experience and capabilities under various criteria identified in the solicitation. And the NIH said that it would value validate the offerors' self-scoring, and then allow the highest-rated offerors to advance to the next phase. And proposals were originally due in August 27, 2021, but that date was postponed. There were multiple successive rounds of protests and corrective actions. And after amending the solicitation 16 times, the agency received proposals from 1,150 bidders. So massive, massive proposal. And I think one that illustrates some of the challenges of having a procurement of this size with this many different potential contracts, which ironically is intended to save time. But you see with amendment after amendment and protest after protest and corrective action that it draws out over time. So after the uh, offerors were identified to move on, there were challenges brought, protesters raising grounds for challenging the exclusions from moving on to the next round and the ways that their proposals were evaluated. It sounds like NIH wanted to create a marketplace with as many bidders as they could fit in, but yet you can't just let anyone in because you don't know whether everyone who would be on that marketplace is legitimate and can deliver according to what the government standards would be. So they had to be a big net, but yet still some filtration, I guess you'd say. Yeah, that's right. And part of the design was that there would be all these different small business and socioeconomic categories. There was kind of a menu in that regard. But that added some additional complexities because offerors within an individual bucket were supposed to only be evaluated against other offerors in that bucket. So that complicated the calculations even further. And so what do we learn from all of this? So GAO evaluated the protests and sustained protests on two grounds. First, that the agency didn't adequately document that it validated all the offerors self-scored proposals the way that it said that it would. The GAO said they didn't determine that proposals were not validated, but there wasn't adequate documentation to show that the agency had done its job to validate all of the proposals. And then the second issue was establishing cut lines for different socioeconomic groups. The uh, GAO said that there were some inconsistencies and it wasn't clear whether the agency had included unvalidated scores 
in establishing those cutoffs for the proposals that would advance to the next round. I would say, though, the real takeaway from these successful proposals is that the agency, regardless of the size of the procurement, has to follow the rules that it sets for itself and document That's nothing groundbreaking there. But of course, that's a much bigger challenge when you're dealing with some of these extremely massive contracts and that volume of proposals and contemplated awards. Right. So you really have to be able to scale your management and oversight of what you're doing when you have such a big number of possible parties involved. Yes. So some would even look at this and question whether this kind of self-scoring is a good method, whether agencies should go back to the drawing board and how they evaluate these massive GWACs. All right. We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone, and we're talking about the uh, most significant protests of the past year. And you mentioned two Federal Circuit decisions that clarify procedural and jurisdictional bid protest rules. These sound like a little bit more basic sticking to the knitting here. Yeah, so these are fairly technical distinctions, but they're things that procurement lawyers get excited about when you talk about the rules that the Court of Federal Claims has for hearing bid process decisions. Well, apparently the uh, contractors also get excited over them. That's right. Certainly when it's your protest on the line or your award, you care a lot about what the rules are. This has been kind of a pet project of the Federal Circuit, and there's been a lot of progress this year on procedural rules and whether they're properly considered jurisdictional rules, because jurisdictional rules get special status. When I say jurisdictional rules, I mean the rules that go to the court's authority to hear the case in the first place. And so if a rule is jurisdictional, it can be raised at any time. It can't be waived or forfeited, and the court or other tribunal has to even raise it if the parties don't. If it comes to their attention, there could be an issue. So uh, jurisdictional rules are kind of supercharged as compared to other procedural rules. And the Federal Circuit looked at two specific bid protest rules, the blue and gold waiver rule regarding timeliness of solicitation challenges and the statutory standing rule or interested party rule. So M.R. Pittman, the first case on the blue and gold waiver rule, the protester submitted a proposal to repair pump units at a pump station and the company had the lowest price of four bidders that responded to the solicitation, but was deemed ineligible for award because the contract was set aside for small business and the company didn't qualify as a small business under the applicable NAICS code. So M.R. Pittman brought a post-award protest at GAO, alleging that the solicitation couldn't be treated as a set-aside because it left out the NAICS codes, without which it couldn't establish what the size was. GAO dismissed the protest as untimely, and Pittman refiled at the Court of Federal Claims, making the same argument. And the government filed a motion to dismiss and opposition to the contractor's motion for a temporary restraining order and preliminary injunction. And there was a hearing, and the Court of Federal Claims ruled that M.R. Pittman had waived its right to protest under blue and gold because it didn't raise the issue until after the award was made. And under blue and gold, that's the rule. You know, If you're challenging the terms of the solicitation, you have to do it before the due date for proposal submission. Right. Even though the merits might be in your favor, ultimately, if you don't go about your procedures for protest correctly, that doesn't matter. That's right. And there was a suggestion that the protester kind of exploited the rules. Of course, if they had raised the issue before the due date for proposals, then the agency could have clarified that it was a set aside and it wouldn't have been eligible in the first place. So on appeal to the federal circuit, the appellate court considered the argument and said, well, blue and gold is not actually a jurisdictional rule. The prior cases in this area have been wrong on that, but it doesn't matter because ultimately 
even though the dismissal was based on lack of jurisdiction, dismissal was proper based on the failure to state a claim. At the end of the day, the contractor needed to raise the issue timely and failure to do so, even in the final resolve, doomed its uh, doomed its proposal. And the Federal Circuit looked again at the circumstances and said it was obvious you know, it was a patent error in the solicitation. And so it was appropriate to require the challenge to be raised before a proposal due date. Okay. And the second case in that category of procedural and jurisdictional bid protest rules? So the other case uh, dealt with uh, the so-called interested party rule or referred to in the Federal Circuit's decision as statutory standing. So the requirement that the contractor has to have a substantial chance of receiving an award in order to have standing to challenge with a protest. So in this case, CICI was one of five bidders for an Army contract to design and manufacture devices to encrypt and decrypt sensitive information on the battlefield. And the solicitation required the devices to use two-factor authentication. And the Army assigned CICI's proposal three deficiencies relating to the two-factor authentication requirements. And CICI also disclosed in its proposal that one of its employees had been involved in a prior contract that created a document that was used in the solicitation. And the agency, the Army here, awarded to another offeror and did so on the basis that CACI hadn't had these deficiencies in its two-factor authentication, didn't raise any issue with OCI. So CACI then protests the uh, assignment of the technical deficiencies. And then the agency says, oh, by the way, you also had an organizational conflict of interest, so you're not an interested party anyway. And the Court of Federal Claims looked at that and said they did their own evaluation and said that there was an organizational conflict of interest, that the prior contract that CACI had had was a CETA contract, and that therefore they weren't eligible for an award, and so weren't an interested party, and they dismissed for basis of lack of jurisdiction. Right. So they came into the whole competition as a party that was not eligible for an award, ultimately. And therefore, the jurisdictional rule came in, because if you can't get an award, then you can't have standing. That's right. So whether they had the technical deficiencies or not was beside the point. Although the court did also decide in the trial proceeding that the technical deficiencies assigned by the agency were valid. So Fast forward to the, the Federal Circuit's decision. Uh, the Circuit held that statutory standing similarly was not a jurisdictional rule. And in this case, it overruled some 20 years of precedent, including its own prior cases. But the issue was then whether the technical deficiencies stood on their own. And the Federal Circuit said that they did, even though the court had erred in making a determination of the organizational conflict of interest de novo, the uh, the fact that the technical deficiencies were properly assigned by the agency was enough to affirm the trial court's decision. So therefore... So in the final resolve, when you have some of these shifts in procedural rules, it's not clear the extent of the practical effects that the change in status will have. And the Federal Circuit, in some of its decisions, such as on claims where it's made similar moves in declaring procedural rules no longer jurisdictional, has said, in most cases, this won't really make a difference. And we have some examples where the court found other grounds to support the decisions below. The point is you got to pay attention to the big cases because things change in the way the court looks at them and in the way that the agencies go about their solicitations. That's right. And in these cases, you know, the Federal Circuit has been persuaded by Supreme Court precedents. So you have to have a, a broader perspective. Uh, and in the end, it is possible that contractors will get farther into the litigation because these protests can't be kicked uh, 
based on a motion to dismiss for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. All right. Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. No doubt you'll have plenty of upcoming cases this year, right? No doubt. All right. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance, And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. 
And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, 
I realized that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, 
that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.